on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week in Sportsando, our newest segment, Ashley draws a straight line from opera houses to ESPN via baseball. Trust us, it works. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Valery Gergiev is in the news again, more like Valery Griftergiev. Pause for laughter. If you're watching via the Dallas Opera Network... (laughs) Make sure you, if you're still watching on the Dallas Opera Network, make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show with all the puns on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or an email, uh, your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. I mean, what's not to love, Oliver Camacho? Okay, a little bit of sports. There is this diving 20, right in. I see twenty something <laughs> down to year business. Old, twenty. I forget how old he is. He's a kid, twenty-two years old, born in nineteen ninety-nine. His name is Alejandro yep. Davidovich Fokina. And yesterday, we're recording on Monday the eighteenth. Yesterday was the finals of the Monte Carlo Masters series, and he made it to the final, beating Novak Djokovic, world number one, in the second round. Taylor Fritz, one of the top Americans in the quarterfinals, Grigor Dimitrov in the uh, semifinals, and Dang. coming coming close in the second set uh, to taking a set off of Stefanos Tsitsipas, who Ooh. was the repeat winner. So congratulations to Tsitsipas, who still has my heart only for his looks. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas <laughs> won the Monte Carlo Masters yesterday, beating, uh, ending the Cinderella story of... 22-year-old Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who I'm sure we're going to hear more from from Malaga, as white as they come. He's so white, you almost can't see him. Uh, I'm serious. Uh, I don't know if you all remember David Nalbandian, another, well, he was Argentinian, but another one of these tennis players who's just so fair. How do you stay that fair playing in the sun all the day? It's like he's invisible. I mean, it, like he's it like just reflects the sun. Yeah. Speaking but, of European sunscreens work. Speaking of white people, Matt Cummings, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Every, you know what? Every year, the Monday after Easter, I'm like, why did I not take this day off? But, <laughs> thankfully, every time. I'm, yeah, I'm we got a lot of we got a lot you. of singers on this podcast <laughs> coming off of Holy Week. Ashley, how are you holding up? Who we are weary is what we are, but he is risen indeed. <laughs> Hallelujah! Oh wait, that was yesterday. I've slept since then. I Honestly, don't know. yeah, Matt, uh, you bring up a good point for us singers out there. Um, why do we do the Easter vigil? Why? You don't need music for that. You could just talk, talk <laughs> it up, talk amongst and that, yourselves. <laughs> and that often is the long one. It's the it's long one, and the there's worst. candles. And, and there's baptisms, there's... and then there's communion. And so and many like... readings. I yeah. mean, Everyone's disgusting. There's a rabbit read. running around dropping eggs everywhere. I don't know how to deal with it. Uh, let's talk some opera. And now, where the histories of music and sports collide. Boom. Sportsando. 
Happy baseball season, everybody. Lockouts oh, the are The most over. wonderful time of the year. Yes. That's right. Pollen and baseball. Uh, lockouts are over. The opening days have all passed. And the Cubs owners have already bailed on their bid to buy a soccer team. <laughs> Happy spring. <laughs> So in today's Sports Sondo, we're going to talk about baseball and opera. Special and unofficial thanks to writer Mark Shubin, uh, who did some incredible research on this connection that I did a deep, deep nerdy dive in. So Cooperstown, New York. It's known for two things. The Baseball Hall of Fame and Glimmerglass Opera. Mm, to that's that the only end, two things there. there. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, to that end, maybe like a brewery, I think. I don't know. I digress. <laughs> there are really humorous sets of anecdotes at this intersection between opera and baseball. Uh, baritone Robert Merrill was actually a semi-pro baseball player before mm-hmm. he entered the world of opera and musical theater and then eventually became the anthem singer for the Yankees. So he's just circling all the way around it. Uh, Enrico Caruso was once asked what he thought of Babe Ruth, and his response was, I don't know. I've never heard her sing. Um, <laughs> a man after my own heart. <laughs> so precious. But today, I'm going to explain how opera houses basically begat ESPN. Ooh, do tell. Yes. So baseball became popular in North America starting in like the 1800s. By the way, that rumor that Abner Doubleday invented baseball, he did not. Uh, And by the mid 1850s, baseball was like the craze of New York and most of the eastward seaboard. 1876 brought us the National League. 1893 brought us the American League. And that's the foundations for what we know as like modern national baseball competition. And again, late 1890s. So baseball teams are traveling to play each other. So telegraph services were trying to find ways to like report the results and get them back so they'd be in the news papers the next day. But the fandemonium was so crazy, people were sick of waiting for newspapers. They wanted to find out about the game results as fast as they could. Enter the opera house. Stay with me. Let me Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm Na- listening. Yes. Nashville, Tennessee, 1884. Three telegraph op- operators, they came up with this plan to report the game live at Nashville's Masonic Theater for a game with Nashville's baseball team against Chattanooga. Okay, here we go. One of them watched the game on site in Chattanooga, and then they telegraphed the baseball action in short code to the second telegraph operator, who then announced the plays live in Nashville, while a third telegraph operator was moving cards that had the players' names on them around a, quote, painted view of the ball field. (laughs) In the 1880s, this is what they were doing. And the system became so successful that it eventually moved from the Masonic Theater to the Grand Opera house because they needed more space for more people because people were coming to see this it increased the audience from 900 to 2500 per game in 1884 that that is wild to me because like you know i've been not to brag or anything i've been to a baseball game and let me tell you it's not the most engaging sport of all time uh in terms of uh you know that wanting that action so it's kind of wild to me that people would go and watch this in an opera house some someone moving around little things on a board i think that's amazing i mean to be fair maybe the speed of the game was what lent itself to three people telegraphing back and forth (laughs) so that they could get the results up onto the stage of an opera house so we've got this in Nashville in 1884. 1886, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and the DeGive Opera House. They team up with Western Union Telegraph Company to present their first live baseball game, Atlanta versus Charleston. So according to a paper of the time, the Atlanta Constitution, ladies were admitted free, like the of club, course. and gentlemen paid 15 cents a ticket. So these Outrageous. are the Atlanta upgrades that they did <laughs> to the performance. Has feminism gone too far? <laughs> 
1886. These woke opera baseball houses (laughs) are running us out of business. So here's the thing. Atlanta really decides to like up the ante when it comes to the dramatics of baseball. So on the opera stage, they have boys that are dressed in the uniforms of the players running around on the stage on a simulated ball field, reenacting the things that have been telegraphed. So we went from cards that were moving to like actual little boy humans that were running around and simulating the baseball game (laughs) in 18... 86. So Detroit, yes, Detroit later that same year, we move into something that's sort of cosplay, it's sort of journalism, it's sort of live art installation. They really kick it up a notch. So the folks from the Nashville team, they set up shop in the Detroit Opera House, where according to the Detroit Free Press, again, this is in 1886, the crowd, quote, followed the progress of the game, even to the smallest details, reacting just such as heard on a veritable ball field. The action was depicted on a huge land with a quote well-painted perspective <laughs> view of a baseball diamond and outfield so basically opera houses become these like dramatic reenactments like you see in crime shows it was that but for like baseball games that were happening in real time over telegraph being sent across the country this so- might be my favorite art form i thought it was opera before but now i think you're changing my mind ashley this is the is coolest thing this- i've ever heard in my life is this not freaking wild? It's so fascinating. <laughs> so, okay, these are the, the late 1880s. By 1895, there were at least seven U.S. patents for these opera house baseball broadcast systems. And, my friends, you can actually find some of the original patents online. You so can good. see the sketches. You can read, like, the actual patent itself. If, you're, then- uh, if you're listening on uh, uh, on our podcast, check out the Dallas Opera Network this time just to see. I'm going to be flashing them up now. A couple of examples for you. Oh, they are fascinating. So, again, we're, we're really taken off in this Opera House baseball broadcast system. So then, between 1889 and 1927, the U.S. issued at least 44 patents for systems just to watch these remote baseball games. So we went from a couple in the 1880s to seven by 1895 to 40, we'll say five, by 1927. There was one installed just down the street here in Chicago at Orchestra Hall for the 1908 National League pennant race. And our buddies down in Dallas, they actually saw the Dallas Opera broadcasting the 1912 World Series from their stage. There's actually a whole article on this site called Flashback Dallas, where you can read sort of top to bottom exactly how Dallas Opera put this together for the 1912 World Series. And doesn't include like when the audience would do the wave back and forth in the opera house. <laughs> one would hope. The clothing was a little bit more restricted at the time, so I don't know exactly how many I don't know those Gibson girls up. can really move when they put their minds <laughs> to it. That's what I learned from the musical Ragtime. <laughs> Yeah, so again, I I cannot tell you how many hours I spent just looking at all of these like, you know, different ads from opera houses that were talking about how they were, you know, advertising these baseball games. It was like a big deal. Uh, And then these telegraph systems, as we're sort of moving forward and marching on in time, they brought on a slew of electronic systems during the 19-teens and the 1920s. And they were being installed on the sides of buildings and in opera houses nationwide. So there were a whole bunch of companies that were coming out. Like I said, there's 44 patents. By 1927, some of the most prosperous companies for these electronic scoreboards that eventually went into opera houses are, I got some of my favorite names here, the Automatic Baseball Playograph. Amazing. Yes, the Noakes Electroscore, (laughs) the Coleman Lifelike Scoreboard. Very descriptive. 
Yes, uh, this one, the very eloquent, the Rodier Electric Baseball Game Reproducer. That one really roll, rolls off the tongue, I think. Just so poetic. <laughs> and my personal favorite, which is Tom May's Electro Wonder Scoreboard. <laughs> Not just electric, but also truly wonderful. <laughs> a wonder, a wonder. Well, and the thing is, the playograph was the one that really like jumped out in front of everybody. The playograph became so popular that, like the way we think of the word jumbotron and the word Kleenex, playograph became so popular that it morphed from like a brand name into this universal generic term for this operation. Hmm. Now. These opera scoreboards, they went deep. So a Coleman, which is the Coleman lifelike scoreboard. Uh, the Coleman was installed at a Providence Opera House in 1914. And then the Evening News, which is the paper of the time, reported that, quote, even arguments between players and arbitrators are shown. Huh. <laughs> Alanis See, Morissette said it best. Thank you, Providence. <laughs> you, you're getting the hot goss. You're getting the tea. You're getting the game all at once, thanks to these magical, magical scoreboards and opera houses. And then operas and newspapers start going into business projects together because this is so lucrative. So in 1931, the Tucson Opera teamed up with the Arizona Daily Star and they installed a playograph at the Opera House and sponsored an event so that fans could watch the World Series of that year between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Philadelphia Athletics. What's so fun about me about reading baseball history is that you recognize team names, team names, excuse me, but they're not in the city that you think of them now. So <laughs> right. St. Louis. Nope. That's no. Nope, where is that? I couldn't tell you where they are now. But uh, yeah, it, but the <laughs> cards are fine. And then the Philadelphia, that's the athlete. Nope. They, they have the Phillies. The Oakland has the athlete. Anyway, it's a it's a fun little like shift in your brain to figure out where people <laughs> are all located. Uh, unfortunately, so we've gone on this like, you know, fast train to like electronic scoreboards. They're all the rage. Everybody's in opera houses watching baseball. But the height of opera house baseball popularity coincided with market saturation and the introduction of this newfangled thing called television. All boo, boo. Boo, boo. <laughs> we want little boys running around on stage in outfits. Um, <laughs> that sounds weird. Please don't use that cut for anything, Weston. Um, like <laughs> Turn it into a GIF. <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> So, yeah, so we've got this big boom and then immediately a bust because as soon as television comes out, there's not as much need for these things anymore. So in 1939, U.S. baseball games are first televised and the Vincennes Sun commercial in Indiana, which had one of these playographs, didn't even bother putting it up that year because they uh. knew that people were going to be watching on TV instead of coming to the opera house. So at the moment, like right now as we speak, sports TV networks entertain millions of people, but in that pre TV era between the 1880s and the 1930s, opera house baseball was the thing, and it was entertaining thousands of opera and baseball fans nationwide. And how precious is it that we've seen a reverse renaissance of operas being broadcast to fans in where? Baseball parks. So now you have San Francisco <laughs> broadcasting their shows at AT&T Park. You have Washington National Opera doing it for Nationals Park. Uh, to quote Mark Shubin, who his research helped me get a lot of this stuff together, turnabout is fair play. And that is how opera houses begat ESPN. <laughs> okay. That's a slow clap moment. You know, in this research did you actually just uncover a secret that george cedarquist has been keeping from us is he really like a time traveler and the <laughs> idea of the opera box score was not an original idea it's an idea from back in the 
you know, pre-war days. He stole it from Rodier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, I was reading this and I like, I, I don't know why, but I felt threatened. Like, like the electro play, playograph was going to come back and replace us as a podcast because this is, as I said before, the coolest thing that I have never heard of before. And this I want to say the thank real you, opera Ashley. box score. I mean, this is, this it is literally it. is. That's we it. Got, like opera check. Box, it box, took us check. score. It took check. us seven. What season are we in now? Seven. It took us seven years to forget what our name meant. <laughs> Listen, a, a, a journalist never reveals all her sources. Um, but exactly. I did. I did find. Uh, I, I happened upon an amulet when rubbed three times clockwise. Uh, <laughs> a young boy that looked a lot like a little George Cedarquist in a, uh, a penny hat and some stockings did uh, say, "Come this way, and I will show you things." Uh, God, I am saying really inappropriate things today. Stop. Letting me talk. This is terrible. But is this not the coolest thing? I was so fascinated with this. I'm like, this is. I wonder if any still exist. I wonder if any of these big old playographs or anything are around somewhere gathering dust in the back of an opera house somewhere. There's Uh. got to be. I have not gotten that far in my research, but listeners, if you know anything about where any of these playographs (laughs) or uh, what are some, the lifelike scoreboard, the game reproducer, any of those, we'd love to hear about them. Hell, I'll drive to go see one. I am. We're looking for any hot tips on where we can find an Electro Wonder (laughs) scoreboard. Yeah. (laughs) Better yet, better yet, if you have a grandpa who was around or a grandma that was around in the 30s, uh, show them a picture of young George Cedarquist and see if they recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, if we're talking about time travel, we're talking about units of time. And if we're talking about units of time, we're talking about the two-minute drill. That's now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operland this week. Supporters of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny claim that Valery Gergiev has been stealing from his own charity, that he clandestinely owns a Milan restaurant and holds a secret Dutch citizenship. Meanwhile, American conductor and Gergiev protege Gavriel Heine has resigned as resident conductor from the Mariinsky Theater, saying, Russia is not a place I want to raise my son. It is not a place I want to be anymore. Still facing cancellations, both outside of and within Russia itself, Anna Netrebko has been thrown a bone by Opera de Monte Carlo. A company spokesperson says Netrebko made a statement two weeks ago regarding the war and her relationship with Putin. She has taken a clear position against the war in Ukraine. Netrebko has been called upon to replace an ailing Maria Agresta in Manon Lasko, a production that co-stars her husband Yusuf Netrebko, I mean Avazov. The Ukrainian ambassador to Austria is calling on Salzburg Festival to cancel the performances of the Music Aterna Orchestra. The orchestra's founder and conductor Teodor Korenzis are financed by the sanctioned Russian VTB Bank, which is closely linked to President Putin. Meanwhile, bel canto tenor turned conductor Dmitry Korchak is slated to lead the Moscow Virtuosi State Chamber Orchestra in a concert which will include pro-Putin soprano Hibla Gershmava. All my heroes are embarrassing me. Aw. A pair of Texan philanthropists and longtime patrons have donated $3.3 million to Austin Opera to support Spanish language programming and the appointment of Claudia Chapa as the inaugural curator of Hispanic and Latinx programming. Said Chapa, quote, This extraordinary act of philanthropy by Sarah and Ernest Butler will help ensure that our arts programming reflects the city we serve for years to come. 
Jonas Kaufmann will be the inaugural recipient of the Corelli 100 Prize, which has been awarded by the Teatro delle Musee in Ancora, the hometown of the prize's namesake, Franco Corelli. In announcing the award, the Teatro delle Musee Foundation said Kaufmann is an artist who, more than any other, today represents the reference interpreter in the opera repertoire, recognized and appreciated by a global audience. The German tenor is scheduled to pick up his award on Sunday, unless he cancels. <laughs> doggies. Okay, good news for fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and opera, by which we mean me specifically. 150 items from the late justice's home and office will be auctioned off later this month to support Washington National Opera. Pieces for sale include an earthenware plate by Pablo Picasso, a black mink coat with RBG's name sewn in the pocket, oh my god, and a caricature that once hung in her Supreme Court office. Our hometown team, Chicago Opera Theater's 50th season, will feature Karol Szymanowski's King Roger in its Chicago premiere and Justine Chen's The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, both conducted by Lydia Yankovskaya, plus Benjamin Britten's Albert Herring, conducted by Dame Jane Glover. The season will also feature the COT Vanguard production of Sean Copebelo's The Cook-Off and a new entry into Jake Heggie and Gene Shear's Holocaust Memorial series, Music of Remembrance. Arts leaders in France are calling on their followers to vote for President Emmanuel Macron in his runoff election against Marine Le Pen. Among the leaders from the opera world include Alexander Nief from Paris Opera, Louis Langres from the Opera Comique, Richard Brunel from Opera National de Lyon, Valérie Chevalier from Opera Orchestre National de Montpellier, and Alain Perroux from the Opera National du Rhin. And any decent person, if we're being honest. <laughs> On the disabled list, 79-year-old conductor and pianist Daniel Barenboim is receiving medical treatment for circulation problems and will cancel all performances through April 22nd. Berlin State Opera will replace Barenboim on the podium for two Mozart operas with Giuseppe Mentuccia and Thomas Gugais. Exit stage right. Belgian composer Philippe Bosmans has died at age 85. Bosmans was known as the longtime composer in residence for the Théâtre du Monet, where his operas, including La Passion de Gilles, Winter, sorry, Winter Märchen, and Julie, were premiered. Acclaimed English composer Harrison Birtwistle has died at age 87. Birtwistle was an influential but controversial composer, known for his bold musical ideas and avant-garde sensibilities with operas such as Punch and Judy and The Mask of Orpheus. As of this recording, we have just learned that celebrated Romanian pianist Radu Lupu has died at age 76 after a long illness. Lupu was frequently cited by fellow musicians as an inspiration and model of an artistic expression, particularly for his interpretations of Brahms, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, whose songs he recorded with soprano Barbara Hendricks. And on this day, April 18th, in 1682, it was the first performance of Lully's opera Perse in Paris. Italian mezzo-soprano and lover to both of the greatest generals of oh. her time, Giuseppina Grassini was born this day in 1773. In 1797, it was the first performance of Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf's Singspiel der Mädchenmark. In 1863, it was the birth of Austrian mezzo-soprano Irene von Chavan, who sang the role of Herodias in the world premiere of Strauss's Zalome and took over singing the role of Clytemnestra in Electra since the role's creator, Ernestine Schumann-Heich, dropped out after the first performance. Legendary. 
1871, it was the first performance of, Amer- of an American opera called The Temple of Minerva by Francis Hopkins. Francis Hopkins. Uh, in Oh, we say happy birthday to Catherine Malfatano, who was born this day in 1948. And happy birthday to Chinese composer Tan Dun, born this day in 1957. And in 1965, Marian Anderson ended her 30-year singing career with a concert at Carnegie Hall. And that's your two-minute drill. just heard the birthday girl herself, Catherine Malfitano, uh, singing the Act 4 love duet from Romeo and Juliet with tenor Alfredo Krauss. Uh, that's from the Met Centenary Gala in 1983 uh, with Jeffrey Tate conducting. I really like Catherine Malfitano, and I actually really like the recording of uh, Romeo and Juliet that the two of them did together. I think it's with Michel Poisson. I think it's probably, for my money, the best recording of the opera. Cause really? She... She, like, has the heft to get through the really hard parts, but she's able to still make it sound girlish. And so many Juliets sound like Juliet's mom, and it doesn't work quite as well. <laughs> and Alfredo Cross was only 60 when he recorded that. Right, so a young a young spring chicken he. An impish, impish Truly star-crossed lovers. Uh, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. That's just for sharing your own, own hot take. Don't pay a thing. Just bug George in his inbox and uh, he'll send you something for free. What a deal. Free 99. Just in case you were intrigued about this uh, Grassini story, uh, the two two men that she uh, took to bed, took bed with. How do you say this in a more elegant way? In a more. (laughs) Took a lover. I don't know if it gets more elegant. The lover she took. Who are the lovers she took, Oliver? What what were they? The poison to kill Cusco. (laughs) Where Napoleon. And his arch nemesis, the Duke of Wellington. Oh, we, that seems like a we, Netflix like. <laughs> that seems like an opera. Making. That yeah. seems like a real uh, spicy menage a trois to me. Uh, I really <laughs> love the story <laughs> about uh, Irene von Chavan uh, uh, because you know, t- speaking of taking over uh, uh, in uh, in Electra, I mean that was the original production. I don't know uh, how much you know about the story, but. Um, a lot of early Strauss was considered very ch- – oh, it still is considered challenging. But uh, the orchestra literally went on strike, I think, more than once. We've never uh, played anything like this was- before. <laughs> <laughs> they said the music was unplayable. So I just love, like, you know, um, the uh, the original Clytemnestra, you know, dropping out. Um, and then uh, Siobhan was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go and I'll do it. It's fine. I just love the audacity of that. Um, and I, I just love me a good – people complaining about how difficult the music is or sounds, uh, which is my segue into saying Harrison I'm really Bert sad about Harrison Burt. Hold my beer. <laughs> I, uh, this, what, this news dropped today. Um, 
uh, as a matter of fact, I remember I was just kind of sitting at, at work and I, I saw it pop up on my news feed. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted to say, like, you know, it, it really hit me really deeply. Uh, surprisingly, I, I did not get into Harrison Burt Whistle that quickly. He's a more recent obsession of mine, uh, believe it or not. But um, especially Mask of Orpheus, the, the way that piece is constructed is it, it is avant-garde, sure, but it's like it really follows the core of the drama and the atmosphere of what's going on. A lot of modernists get accused of like ignoring the purpose of the music and, you know, being in like their own little experiments in their heads, uh, which I also like because that's me. But uh, Burt Whistle really understood opera as a dramatic art form. And uh, I think he will be missed and his influence will be missed, at least by me. And I think hopefully some others. Mm. One like kind of wild fun fact that comes up in his obituary is that he was he was the first commission to do a modern piece at the proms and apparently <laughs> the uh, audience of the proms they did not like it did not particularly <laughs> care for it they wanted to hear rule britannia again instead <laughs> they did not care for it no that's the proms audience bring for back you. the elgar <laughs> uh uh uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about Jonas Kaufmann. Uh, 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 Oliver, what do well, you think of this little prize thing is like, that he's we, gotten for himself? We saw this story come through from this uh, theater in Ancora. And I haven't heard of the Teatro delle Musee. I mean, I'm not Italian, so maybe it's a very famous theater. But, you know, <laughs> Kaufmann has engagements in only the most like well-known venues in the world. He doesn't have time for like this little town of Ancora. So I think they invented <laughs> a Corelli prize just so they can get Kaufman to come by. <laughs> like, if we have a prize for you, we'll see. Please, <laughs> si please sign my Christmas CD. <laughs> I, as the definitive interpreter of All I Want for Christmas is You, do you have anything that you want you know, to tell I'm glad the you, crowd? I'm glad you said here. that because, because actually the quote from the foundation of the Teatro delle Musee. I thought that was actually a really great thing to say about him. It's a very original take that he is the reference interpreter of some of the, you know, most important roles in the tenor repertoire. I like that. I want to be the reference interpreter of Comfort Ye in Every Valley. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're my, my reference, reference, honey. You're mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, Ashley, uh, do you? Uh, I, I believe when we we're going through, I think you had a hot take about uh, the France election um, and what's I, going I mean, on. My question was, how many jobs does Alexander Neef have? <laughs> We've given him all of those jobs, and now it's his job to tell the people of France and unite with all of these other artists to be like, hey, don't vote for Le Pen because our jobs are toast if that happens. How many? <laughs> we have relied on our sweet little Neef for so many things. And so I just, I was very confused, but also delighted. And it's also so wild that Macron and Le Pen are in this runoff. She used to be as far right as you could go. And then she leaned a little left, and now there's all these people to the right of her. So there's a whole bunch of other – what's the word in French for lunatics? Uh, le lunatique? I don't know. But, like, it's terrifying <laughs> to me that all of these different people exist. But thank you to Alex for taking yet another line on his resume to let the people of France know they need to vote Macron. Well, you know what? It's a pretty good thing that he decided to take on the job of international political savior and not international <laughs> crime syndicate leader like the Larry <laughs> oh. Gergiev. Oh, this Gergiev. is a wild story. Story. Like uh, he's well, actually he's actually a spy. We didn't realize he works for the 
the KGB <laughs> what he's do they a call contractor. It? Yeah, yeah. This uh, we should say this is all very alleged. Um, I I I, I do think that you well, know, isn't uh, it always? It, it yeah. is always. You know, uh, I I do think that some of these some of these uh, these things that that he's being accused of literally don't make sense to me. Like it's like. He owns property in New York. Ooh, scary. Like, okay, like I'm not entirely sure why that's uh why that's a revelation. He also owns a restaurant in Milan. How apparently. dare he own a restaurant? And then the, the thing that conf- that confused me the most: secret Dutch citizenship. Uh, apparently, maybe maybe a big deal in Russia. I don't understand that. It's one probably personally. illegal to have dual citizenship in Russia. But yeah, he's not gonna... I, I'm. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but like, Jesus be a shady dry cleaning frontal business. This is <laughs> insane, this amount of things that's there. I mean, the idea of owning property in other places is a way to funnel and launder money, but also a lot of countries are shutting off the ruble and any funds that are coming in and out of Russia. So I don't know how much longer this is going to last for old, old Grifter Gergiev. The house uh, of cards <laughs> is going to come tumbling down. Yeah, what down. is his charity? Does anybody look that up? Uh, I uh, yeah, it was like it's just I think it's just called it's just called the Gergiev chair. I don't remember what exactly what it's called. Okay, but it's like the Trump Foundation type of deal. Yeah, like... exa- it's almost exactly the same story. <laughs> it's money. I have my suspicions that I don't think that all of these allegations are true. I think that the Navalny supporters see an opportunity to weaken a Putin ally, um, and I think they're taking they're taking it. You know, uh, whether it's true or not, I think it's probably something I support in broad terms at the very least maybe um, they're actually not uh supporters of alexei navalny maybe they're supporters of dmitry korchak and trying to get dmitry more conducting gigs <laughs> yeah You've given us something to uh, think about oliver yeah <laughs> i mean it's so weird because like i'm crazy about Teodor Corenzi's. i'm always promoting his work to early music people and even to non-early music people i think it's really uh, a very fresh take on a lot yeah. of stuff. But I should have known when he started casting Simone Kermes in everything that something is a little bit fishy about that guy. <laughs> I mean, we do not need to hear her sing La Traviata. We do not need to hear her Norma. We really don't need anything from her. But um, yeah, she's a weird Same. choice. Yeah. <laughs> she's a weird yeah. choice. It, it's one of those things. There really is uh, the separation of the, uh, the chaff and the wheat here <laughs> to, to oh. a certain extent. Uh, what's all wheat though? I want to talk a little bit about the cot season because, oh yeah, honestly, this is such a cool season. I did mean, we like, go yeah. to the Alan Turing opera together? We did. Yes, okay. we, we 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 both when they were workshopping uh, it. Yeah. So uh, uh, Oliver and I have seen the sort of sneak preview. It was as the it workshop were. version. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it changes, but it was a very affecting opera. I think Alan Turing is a is a great subject. For uh, it was uh, for a good show. Yeah. It was a really good show, and I'm so glad that to see that like this. So they have this thing called the Opera Vanguard yeah. um, Fellowship, I guess, where they help composers develop their operatic ideas. And right now they have Matthew Rezio and um, I forget who the other Vanguard composer is. Oh, uh, well, anyway, Sean Pablo is coming through yeah. the program. Uh, they had Stacy Garib go through the. I think she was the inaugural fellow in that program, and. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really cool program. And Justine Chen was one of the first shows that they workshopped, uh, The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. And it was beautiful. Uh, it was really, really sentimental and points. Great for the gays. Lots of like gay, <laughs> gay, gay, gay sadness in it, you know. 
all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a little bit and of gay sadness in, in King Roger, honestly. And in, uh, and in friend it, of the yeah. show, Albert Herring, if we're being perfectly Albert honest. Yeah, there, there's, <laughs> yeah. A, there's a little bit. Is this a season chosen just for me? Just for <laughs> Oliver. I'm so excited to see the, the premiere of King Roger. It's one of my favorites, uh, sort of like... Uh, I really, you really detect the hand of Lydia, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, like bringing in, like you know, not yeah. just the new stuff, um, but like the 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 Eastern European uh, stuff. It, it, it's a great season. If I'm not mistaken, they Lyric Opera was going to mount King Roger for Marius Kavitchen, but then he sort of oh. retired suddenly, so they withdrew that plan. So this really is—I hmm. can't believe it—in it in a city that has. More Polish people than I think. Warsaw, I know exactly. Like, maybe yeah. I think Warsaw yeah. is the only other city that has more Polish people in it. It's yeah. The the stat is that we Chicago has more Poles than any other city in the world outside of Warsaw. And we're just now bringing out King Roger. Yeah. yeah. You know what's wild though is like I'm I'm all excited about both of those productions. I'm weirdly excited about Albert Herring. Oh, it's gonna uh, be amazing. It's going to be so – well, for two things. Number one, Albert Herring is a hoot, and I can't wait to see sort of what COT does with this. I kind of hope it is a throwback to sort of what they were doing like 15 years ago. And speaking of 15 years ago, the fact that Jane Glover is going to be coming back. She used to be like the person that conducted She did the COT. Mozart de Ponte trio with yeah. Diane Paulus. She did yeah. Monteverdi. I think all of the Monteverdi operas, but for – yeah. For sure she did uh, Orfeo. I forget if she did the other mm-hmm. two. Uh, and she also conducted one of my favorite abduction Australias I've ever I've ever seen in my life, and that's a hard opera. Oh, for a lot. Mm-hmm. that one and, was so good. Yeah. yeah, and like maybe visually it wasn't amazing, but the singing and the music making was so good in that show. So had um, what's her name, Jane Archibald as oh no oh, Leah wow. Partridge, Leah Partridge. I'm sorry. Leah Partridge as yeah. Constanza. But so. Archibald sang a lot for Glover in that yeah. era of COT yeah. as well. That that Canadian. Magician. Yeah, maybe she uh, was all... Blunchen. Would that have been? <laughs> no. Anyway. While, I can't while recall... the two of you are trying to remember <laughs> 15 years ago, I, I don't want to tell you how young I was 15 years ago. Uh, but, don't. Uh, I'll burn this place down. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap this show up. Take it to Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. That's how we end the shows around here, around these parts, even when George isn't here. Let's start with Oliver Camacho. So um, next weekend, I want to say, the uh, Vivica Janot is returning to Chicago to sing. You know what? I don't care what she's singing. Just like, sing actually, fast. Just yeah, singing like, fast. <laughs> this program is called Lucifera. I think it's her own concept with Ruben Dubrovsky, who is uh, conducting um, it's like rando, you know, um, high Baroque composers that you've never heard of before. Um, and it's, I'm sure it's all just crazy nuts ball, you know, coloratura, high and low. Um, that's what she does. And uh, I'm here for it. So check it out if you're in Chicago, Third Coast Baroque, uh, the weekend of the 29th, I want to say. Matt Cummings. Yeah, just a quick shout out from me that uh, since I was on the show last hour, friend of the show, Rachel Willis Hortz. This is my good call last week, by the way. Okay, well, I didn't listen to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm going to repeat it because this album is a bop. Yeah. What I want to say about this, I think I said it, but I'll say it again. This is repertoire she actually sings. You know, there Mm -hmm. are so many sopranos who come out with amazing voices and then like record arias from operas they've never even been in, you know. 
but this is her this is her rep and she's it's feels lived in and it's it's so good she sounds incredible on this record ashley hardgrave I have two pieces of media that I recommend you consume after this podcast. The first is Our Lord and Savior hosted uh, SNL last week. Lizzo. Lizzo, Our Lord and Savior hosted SNL last week. It is incredible. It's so funny. (laughs) It is incredible. She double dutied as musical guest and host. It was incredible. Definitely check out the Cut for Time sketches. They're gold. Uh, And then second, because we're coming off of Easter week, uh, I have this weird tradition where I watch Jesus Christ Superstar or some version of it during that week. I just discovered, this is new to me, so if you're someone who knows it, congratulations to you. Uh, the 40th anniversary of London's West End premiere, they did an arena production with Tim Minchin as Judas and Mel C. from the Spice Girls as Sporty Mary Spice, Magdalene. Yes, Sporty Spice. <laughs> it's from like 2012, uh, and it's oddly wonderful. I encourage you to find it and check it out. I have a good call this week. Uh, I saw a a review in the Los Angeles Times that I wanted to uh, bring up. This is a production uh, that took place in the Walt Disney Concert Hall with the LA Philharmonic and uh, in collaboration with Deaf West Theater, uh, which was a production of Fidelio that included uh, deaf actors and all of the dialogue was completely signed and uh, and projected out. Uh, And just reading the, the, the... the description like kind of makes makes my heart warm up it's 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 so amazing because when we say we want to opera to be something that can be experienced by anybody uh, sometimes we just don't think about the people who can like physically like not experience in the same way that hearing people do um and i think it was just so amazing how uh, so many uh deaf audience members got to come out and experience um beethoven and fidelio uh, in a way that spoke to not just them, but but everyone else in the audience as well. And it really was, uh, sounds like an amazing production. It reminds me of um, the famous anecdote about Helen Keller, who um, who was, uh, who was who listened by touching speakers, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and, um, and she felt the vibrations and felt the power of the performance. And I think that there's just a real power in music that, transcends even the ability to hear it sometimes and i think it's uh extraordinary that productions like this are out there that is it for this week's edition of america's talk radio show about opera our announcer is norm waddell who can be found at normwaddell.com if you're watching on the dallas opera network make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on stitcher or spotify you can click follow and if you listen on apple podcasts you can just hit that little plus sign Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is this guy. Uh, for our co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera in Valery Gergiev's secret Milan restaurant. The password is pancetta. We're back with an all new show next week. You'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more RBG monogrammed into the pockets of your pants. Join us.